Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, I want to start off by saying I recognize that today's show is going to have content. That's a little unusual uh, for us, uh, but I hope it's valuable to everyone. Uh, in a little while, I'm going to be joined by my regular Thursday partner, Kevin Riley, who, of course, is the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and also making a return visit, Dr. Ray Kotwicki. He's the chief medical officer of Skyland Trail, which is one of the country's premier mental health centers, and he is a, uh, a psychiatrist as well. But I'm going to start the show today by sharing with you a personal story about my family in the midst of the pandemic. Not because I think that somehow our experience is unique or deserves special attention, but in fact, for the opposite reason. We're all struggling with, I think, various difficulties as we live in our strange world today. And over the past couple of months, you've been very generous in sharing with me your personal stories about how you're dealing with the virus. So I hope that my message in talking about what we're going through in the Nygut and Schaefer household in fact, really does say that we're all in this together. Three weeks ago tomorrow, on May 1st, my father-in-law, Max Schaefer, died. He was 94 years old. He wasn't a victim of COVID-19, but the cruelty of the coronavirus overshadowed every moment of the final months of his life and continues to take a toll on how our family grieves his loss. Max Schaefer was one of the great Atlanta personalities. He was born here, grew up in what was once the old Jewish neighborhood in downtown Atlanta. He went to Boys High, and he met his wife, Frida, my wonderful mother-in-law, at a party celebrating the creation of the State of Israel. Max and Frida were married for 70 years. Dad served in the infantry in World War II, but I'd probably known him for more than a decade before he talked to me about his service. One day he pulled out a small velvet case and he showed me a bronze star, which he'd been awarded for dashing across German lines to get help for his unit pinned down and fast giving up hope that they would survive. It was a mission he volunteered for. Dad had one of the most positive attitudes about life of anyone I've ever known. He was one of those guys who brought happiness to just about everyone he met whether it was at the store where he bought his daily lottery ticket, he was always convinced he was going to be one of the big, big jackpot winners. That never quite happened for him. He was at the gym on many days. He was kind of known as the mayor of the Toco Hill LA Fitness because he sat on a bike, an exercise bike, right near the door and greeted everybody who came in, uh, although he didn't do a whole lot of exercise, to be truthful. For the past year or so, he struggled with congestive heart failure. He was in and out of the hospital several times. Uh, the doctors were able to fix him up, send him home. But his final stay began during the second week of March, which was just about the time we were all beginning to understand that the coronavirus deserved our respect and was going to force us all to change how we lived our lives. For the final two months of Dad's life, 
during his stay in the hospital and then for weeks at home in hospice. None of us, me, my wife, Janice Schaefer, our daughter, Emma, who'd come home from Brooklyn to ride out the pandemic, my son, Bill, his wife, Caroline, none of us were allowed to visit him, which meant that Frida, my mother-in-law, sat with him in the hospital day in and day out alone, dealing with him while no one else from the family was able to be there to share such a difficult burden. During that time, we all learned that FaceTime calls are a poor substitute for being able to hold the hand of someone you love and who you realize is slipping away. Janice and her dad were unbelievably close. They had a standing date for lunch every Friday. Mom often joined them, and Fridays were almost always the very happiest day of the week for my wife because of those lunches. Every day, as Dad lay at home in his bed, Janice agonized over whether she needed to go there and sit with him, which she knew could further risk his fragile health and possibly her own, because at that point, no one knew where the virus was. On the day that he died, when the call came from Mom, Janice couldn't take it any longer. She went over to the house to be with her mom to console her, wearing a mask, keeping six feet away from her mother, the woman who just lost her husband. And when she came home to our house late that day, she had to go into self-isolation in a room of our house. That meant that for more than a week, until we were finally able to get COVID-19 tests and realize that we were negative, Janice had to mourn her dad alone in her room which made things tough for her, but hurt Emma and me, who were close by and could do nothing to comfort her uh, with hugs and physical affection. The one thing we really learned uh, the week of his death that was really, really strange is just how unfulfilling funerals are right now. There were 10 of us allowed to be at Dad's funeral, family only, We had a graveside service, which is fairly typical in a lot of Jewish ceremonies. Each one of us was masked. We kept our our distance from one another. And, and, And it was incredibly strange because mom sat alone, sunglasses, wearing a mask. We couldn't go close to her. She couldn't come to us. And in the long run, it didn't feel like a way to celebrate a man's life. We were more concerned with how far we were standing from one another and whether our masks were comfortable or not. Max Schaefer is a man who was so beloved in his community that his funeral would have attracted a huge crowd, and none of those people got to celebrate his life and to and talk about the joy that he spread. There was no shiva the traditional Jewish period of mourning that would have brought hundreds more people to mom's home to console her and relive favorite stories about his life. And there was no group recitation of Kaddish every night, which is such an important way to memorialize the dead in the days after and all leading up uh, to the year of mourning. Three weeks later now, the virus continues to keep us apart from family members we love most. Mom is still alone at home, although this weekend she came to sit in our front yard, her chair distant from ours. Our conversation was muffled. You all understand this if you're wearing masks because we were all wearing them. 
Our son Bill and his wife Caroline are sheltering in place at a house up on Lake Lanier, and we've had front yard visits with them too, but there's no hugging allowed with them either. We can't be close to them. So how do you mourn a loss, grieve with the support of others in the middle of a pandemic? Our family is still searching for the answers to that. As I tell you this story, I realize that there is one memory that Janice holds on to with special joy. The last time she saw Dad alive was an afternoon that she, Dad, and Mom met at one of Janice's favorite places, Johnny's Pizza on Cheshire Bridge Road. Not exactly a fancy restaurant. But she and Dad loved veggie sandwiches there, toasted extra crunchy and served with a side of ranch dressing. It's a place that holds many, many joyful memories for our family. And now Janice will always hold in her heart the joyous lunch she shared with Dad and Mom that day. And for her especially, knowing that she'd left nothing unsaid to him about how much she loved her dad and the lessons in life that he taught her, that and that lunch at Johnny's at least are some real consolation. I suspect it's possible that there are those of you out there listening today who have had experiences not unlike ours, lost a loved one in the middle of the pandemic or are struggling with someone who is sick and hospitalized who you can't be close to. And I want to talk about that experience and how we try to cope with it with Dr. Kotwicki and Kevin Riley. But let's first take a break and come back on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Uh, as I've told you many times on this show, I really do want to hear how your lives are unfolding during the pandemic. I, I'm, I'm, fa- I'm, I'm interested in knowing what you're going through. And so you're welcome to write me, as so many of you have, at bnigut, B-N-I-G-U-T, at gpb.org. I try to read every email and get back to each one of you. And so I look forward to hearing from you. All right, so let's get started with our conversation. We, we do want to talk a bit about mourning and grieving during a difficult time. And uh, for that, as I said earlier, uh, we're joined uh, by Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and making a return visit, Dr. Ray Kotwicki, chief medical officer of Skyland Trail, uh, who, uh, by the way, I should say very quickly, Ray, uh, your first appearance on this show got overwhelming response. People were so glad to hear you talk about how to deal with the many stresses that we're coping with in, uh, in this uh, terrible period. So thank you for coming back, Ray. Thank you for having me, Bill. And I really appreciate and respect your uh, interest in having conversations about mental health during the pandemic. Um, and foremost, uh, my deepest sympathy for your, for your loss and your family's loss. I appreciate your saying that. Um, Kevin Riley, um, you know I'm always glad to see you here. Um, why don't you start us off? You, I think, want to jump in and uh, ask questions or uh, make comments as we deal with this subject today. 
Yeah, Bill, I, I'm anxious to do that. But before I do, um, I wanted to thank you for the privilege of being on today's show uh, with this topic. And I uh, wanted to thank you. Uh, you know, as a newspaper man, one of the greatest and most valued, valued uh, skills in our profession is the ability to write a great obituary. And uh, I think the one you just delivered about your father-in-law was as fine a, a tribute as I've ever heard. And uh, to, Well, uh, you're very whether... kind to say that. I have to... Go ahead. Well, I, I just uh, I wanted you to know that um, capturing a well-lived life, I've never met your father-in-law, but I feel like I know him now. Okay, terrific. Well, l- let me go ahead uh, and, and start with this. Uh, Ray, um, you heard my story. I suspect you've heard other people with similar stories. The process of mourning and grieving so much depends on being close to those we love to share the grief uh, to console one another, and yet we can't do that at all uh, in the situation we're in today. So, Ray, it makes it very difficult to uh, grieve properly, doesn't it? It really does, Bill. And, you know, it strikes me sort of um, how as a society we're managing the pandemic or trying to manage the pandemic, which parallels what happens when an individual is in the grieving process. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of classical uh, grieving steps that Kubler-Ross um, outlined years ago include denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. And it's um, very similar to what I think we're seeing in society. People at first didn't want to believe that we had to manage COVID-19, and then people became angry about having to do the things that were required. Um, And, you know, finally, I think um, overlaying the stages of grief from an individual perspective onto what's happening secularly in the communities makes everything worse. It magnifies um, the process of grieving in and of itself. Kevin? Yeah, you know, one question I have for you, uh, Dr. Cutwicky, is um, Bill Bill made reference to a couple of, uh, you know, Jewish traditions in in the case of his family. But, you know, every culture, faith, uh, and even within families, there are the rituals of, of grieving. And, you know, why do we have those, and why are they important? I mean, why, why does it matter so much not to be able to do those things? Well, in times of stress um, for everybody, kind of going back to what is familiar is a very healthy thing to do. Um, it, it sort of reminds me of um, the idea of etiquette, which is that, you know, when you're in different situations that uh, require you to act a, uh, in an appropriate way, it can be really helpful to know what the rules are so that in the middle of a, an emotional experience, you don't have to think um, so hard about what you're supposed to be doing. Rituals are the, are the same thing. Um, when people are grieving and they, experiencing an emotional response to something such um, very significant like a loss of a loved one, um, that's not the time to have to put a plan together. And so reverting back to what is familiar um, and to what people know is a very comforting thing. I think the second piece about rituals, Kevin, is that um, it it is an overt way of expressing to one's community that um, somebody is actually uh, um, respecting the loss. Um, And so it becomes a very uh, tangible way of um, people understanding the importance of an experience and um, feeling like they can um, become, you know, part of a community uh, together. 
So Bill and I are, are work together on this show and uh, each week, and then we're also we're also good friends. Um, as a friend, you know, it, it, with so many people experiencing losses out there that you know are in the fr- a friend's family, what's a friend to do? What's a friend to say in a situation like this? I mean, what advice would you give me in this case? You know, when I talk to Bill, or uh, you know, we don't see each other except on uh, occasionally on video, but. But it, it's hard for, in a weird way, for me to know someone who I consider a good friend to know what to say. Well, I think being truthful and, and saying what exactly is in your heart and what you're feeling is the best uh, advice to, to give anybody at any time. Um, you know, one of the, the things that I think is tricky is that we've all been thinking about social distancing. And I'm really um, challenging people that I know and, um, you know, the community to reframe that not as social distancing, but as physical distancing. Um, Because right now we do have to stay physically disconnected from one another to prevent um, infections, but it's exactly the time to be socially connected. Um, And so it's a, a misnomer of sorts to talk about social distancing. So there are lots of ways, I think, to be um, connected and to feel um, like you're socially there for somebody without having the physical uh, connections. Um, I think that you know physical touch is, is a very important thing um, in regular times, but during the pandemic, um, there are so many other ways to be socially connected without uh, being physically connected. Um, so you know, recalling stories. Um, I think Bill's uh, account of uh, Max's visit to Johnny's and um, what he ate, and you know the sort of uh, routine that that he had with Bill's wife is a a great way um, to honor his memory and to um, have, you know, a social connection that is meaningful and real, um, despite not being able to be there physically. Um, You know, I was kind of lucky, though. By the way, I... I hope you don't mind my calling you Ray instead of Dr. Kotwicki. And and the reason I'm doing it is because I think you've kind of become a friend. Okay, I mean, you become a friend to the show in such a very real way. And and so thank you for allowing me to skip the, the title. A well-deserved title, I will add. Um, it makes me feel so, younger. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Um, so have you in – are you – do you have patience – uh, at at uh, Skyland Trail, uh, people who are separated from their families, their loved ones now, um, or or is your facility open? How are you, do you? Have you had to handle this kind of problem, whether it's someone who is dying or not, somebody who's in treatment? How, how have you dealt with that? Yeah, we have patients who are isolated from their families and their communities who are in treatment, um, but knock on wood, we don't have any patients or staff at this point who've tested positive for the virus. Um, And so, you know, I think part of um, the challenge that we've had at at Skyland Trail is to work being isolated from somebody's primary support um, into a therapeutic milieu. Um, And typically what we know from lots of research um, for individuals with psychiatric illnesses the best predictor of somebody recovering from depression or schizophrenia or anything else is really the level of community support that they have. Um, And so taking that away and subtracting out the community support that people um, typically enjoy is a real challenge to what else is going on in treatment for patients. Um, What we've done really is to reassure uh, the patients and the staff alike that we are working as hard as we can to protect them 
Um, we have a very rigorous protocol for admitting new patients into the program and for monitoring signs and symptoms of somebody who might be uh, infected and contagious. Um, and then going along with business, um, working as hard as we can at developing an internal community within the patients uh, and, and the staff rather than relying on the external community that people typically um, look to, like their families, people at school, people at work, um, et cetera. Um, and, you know, ironically, I think the, the good news about having to do that is that um, being put into a situation, um, in this case, that is unintentional, to have to develop coping strategies and to figure out how to feel uh, connected with others is really a generalizable skill. Um, and my hope is that as patients are required to do that in treatment at a place like Skyland Trail, they'll be able to replicate that um, after this is over and um, when they can return to the communities. That would be a wonderful uh, attribute to bring forward as other negative things occur in some life. I, I want to, um, uh, uh, for a few more minutes, and then move on to other aspects of how people are dealing with this emotionally, uh, mentally. Uh, I want to stick with this notion of what's going on as uh, we see uh, people pass away uh, in the midst of a pandemic. Um, there's a a column in this morning's New York Times written by Dr. Daniela Lamas, who's at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which, of course, is in Boston, one of the most uh, uh, significant hospitals in, in the Northeast. And, and she basically writes an open letter to uh, the families of people she's been treating. I, I'll, I'll only read just a little bit of it, but I think it's very powerful, and it relates pretty specifically to what we're talking about. She starts by saying to these people, I wish I could tell you that I'm sorry. I would start with an apology for that Saturday afternoon phone call nearly a month ago. You answered on the first ring, anxious for news of your son. You had been there for every one of his hospital admissions for nearly four decades since he was a child. Though the trans Through the transplant, those long nights in the chair by his bedside, watching his chest rise and fall, his hand puffy from fluids in yours, but now you were at home just a few miles that must have felt like worlds apart when I called and told you that his breathing was getting worse and we might have to innovate. I tried to say it gently. I hope you could tell I was trying, but I wanted to balance kindness with clarity, and I needed to make sure you understood how serious it all was without being able to see him. But of course, you understood. I could go on. She talks about other uh, families with her uh, with patients that uh, she was treating. But, Kevin, that really brings it home in a powerful way. Yeah, it sure does. And, um, you know, I, I do think that one of the things I've noticed in, in all of this pandemic stuff, particularly, you know, concerning ourselves with media coverage, is, you know, the remarkable work of frontline healthcare workers, The remar you know, the story like that where people have have found a way to do these important, difficult things. And, you know, we have a section on our website at AJC.com where we profile victims. You know, they're, they're basically obituaries of people who've been lost in the pandemic. And, you know, when I read through them, I'm always inspired by, you know, really good people living really good lives who, you know, that this affected and how important it is to honor uh, those lives. So that because every day, you know, we're reporting the statistics and all this stuff. And, you know, it's important to remember, right? Uh, I think that behind every one of those numbers is a life and a whole bunch of people connected to that life. And 
I think that within all of this tragedy, that that kind of thing can inspire people and help help us all understand and appreciate the people around us more. Ray, weigh in on that. Well, I think it's really a, an interesting area of potential research and study. Um, you know, there, in my experience working with um, frontline healthcare workers, whom I admire greatly, there are two groups that are sort of emerging. One group is the group of people who experience really difficult things and have conversations like the one you quoted from the Times this morning with patients, and they're okay. Um, and then there's a second group that's very distinct who have exactly the same conversations and the same responsibilities who um, sort of crumble under the pressure. Um, and to me, it would be really interesting to try to figure out what separates um, people into one of those two groups. Of course, you know, you have to have a little bit of uh, some cognitive distance when you're working hard in, in very perilous situations. But at the same time, we don't want somebody to be so disconnected from their emotional experience. In, in working with uh, patients that they're antisocial or that they develop some kind of, um, you know, psychopathology. Um, so it would be, I think, fascinating to try to figure out um, from a resilience point of view what the predictors are um, that help some people do really difficult things and manage their own anxiety and their sadness um, in a way that is very functional, while others can't. Um, and if we could figure that out, I think it would be remarkably informative. Ray Kotwicki, you have just led me to another excerpt from a New York Times piece that speaks pretty much to the exact thing you're talking about. Jane Brody uh, wrote today in the Times. She is a longtime uh, columnist for the New York Times dealing with health and medical issues. And, and she talks about it in a slightly different way, but it's, it's the same concept. She says maintaining motivation, and this is for people beyond medical workers. This is for all of us, I think, right now. Maintaining motivation is becoming an increasing challenge for many people slogging through life curtailed by the coronavirus pandemic. Initially facing weeks confined to our homes, we tackled with some satisfaction long-neglected chores like wearing closets of clothes that no longer fit our bodies or lifestyles, reorganizing drawers, emptying pantries, and refrigerators of forgotten foodstuffs. But as the weeks morphed into months with no clear end in sight for much of the country, the ennui of COVID-induced isolation can undermine enthusiasm for such mundane activities. And she goes on and she talks about the psychiatrist Victor E. Frankel, who survived years in a Nazi concentration camp. He wrote a book uh, called Yes to Life in Spite of Everything. And he talks about people who are motivated externally as opposed to those who are motivated internally. And the point here is that we need to find within ourselves, Ray, a way to have take get internally motivated. And he says doing what's meaningful, acting on what really matters to us as individuals is an antidote to the burnout. What really matters to me now, is there a way I can act upon what's meaningful to me, not think about how uh, I, I direct that externally? Does that make sense, Ray? 
It makes total sense, Bill. And having a sense of purpose in and of itself is a really, really healthy thing. Um, we see this in, in patients with physical uh, medical problems, and especially uh, patients with chronic pain, um, who become so internally focused. And it's understandable. If you're in pain all the time and, and you cannot get away from it and you're reminded minute over minute that uh, you're not well and you're unhealthy and, and you're distracted from what's going on, that's a, a really um, a minimizing way to live. Whereas if somebody has an internal sense that they're doing something that contributes to a bigger purpose, um, people can go through um, really difficult situations and not lose a sense of self or a, a sense um, of, of their own individual uh, purpose. Um, so, you know, I think the, the flip side to what we've been talking about with the added stress on healthcare workers and people who are managing extraordinary things during these ordinary times is that by having a sense of purpose, by showing up at the hospital, for example, um, and um, being a part of the fight against COVID-19, that can be a very healthy psychological reframing opportunity rather than sitting home going through your closets and emptying out um, your refrigerator. It gives you a bigger sense of um, an importance in um, having a role uh, in something that otherwise is not understandable. So, Ray, what's your advice uh, along those lines as, you know, you mentioned, you know, uh, the idea of staying connected if we can't be physically close. But, um, you know, as we as so many of us try to keep track of friends and family and stay connected and, and all that, what should we be looking for? I mean, how do we know when maybe someone's in trouble or how can what kind of things can we do to, you know, get beyond how you're doing? you know, when you call someone and get them to really share if they are struggling. Yeah, so, you know, Kevin, there's an old old myth that I, I would love to try to dispel um, in this venue, which is the idea that um, by talking about things that are, are real and somewhat direct and blunt, um, there's a, a misunderstanding from a lot of people that you'll introduce um, bad ideas into somebody's head who already isn't thinking about things. Um, classically, you know, parents don't want to talk with their um, adolescents about uh, sexual activities because the understanding is that that will introduce idea and their kids will ironically do the things that they're not wanting them to do. Um, Adolescents are already thinking about having sex, and so by talking about it, it doesn't increase the risk that um, that that behavior will occur. Um, The same thing is true in every other kind of relationship. So, um, you know, if somebody is really depressed and a person who's connected with them is concerned, saying, hey, you know, a lot of people who have depression sometimes think about dying um, or about suicide. Um, Have you had those thoughts? Um, And simply by asking the question, you don't introduce a new idea into somebody's way of thinking about things, but you, through example, make it clear that it's okay for somebody who truly is thinking about suicide or thinking about, um, uh, you know, negative outcomes, that they're they're given permission of sort to be able to be truthful with you. Um, And so from my point of view, that's the most helpful thing that people can do. There's, you know, um, an idea that not uh, talking about difficult topics is a kind thing. And I look at it exactly the opposite, which is that if somebody really is concerned about an individual and really has a good relationship with somebody, talking about truthful but difficult um, topics is probably one of the most important things that all of us can do. You know, we went through that exact experience with uh, my mother-in-law 
um, in, in the days after um, her husband passed away. By the way, I have to stop for a second. Uh, Ray, why do we shy away? Why do we no longer say someone died? It seems it's become conventional thinking that we now use the expression passed away, passed, transitioned. There seems to be this fear of saying quite simply a person died, as if it's somehow disrespectful that they failed us in some way because they've had, I, I find that dis, I find it more than odd. I find it kind of disturbing. Yeah, Bill, you know, I, I look at it almost as sort of extreme ageism, <laughs> which sounds um, sort of silly and simplistic. But, you know, especially in American culture, think of how much money and how much time we spend on trying to avoid aging. Um, and there's um, a, a real disdain, I think, for the natural life cycle. Um, as people, you know, start to look different, as people have uh, different um, levels of energy and, and experiences and activities, um, there's a real Stain for that, I think, within um, our culture. And so using the word died um, is sort of the finality of um, aging. Um, and I think people are really afraid of that, uh, especially for those of uh, you know, those people in the, in the community who don't have a sense that um, there's an existential kind of closing of the loop with death. Um, it is comforting for somebody who doesn't know how to grieve to think that it's, it's really um, maybe not the, the final stage of the aging process. Well, and, and that leads us back to the question I was headed toward before I took that little detour, or the comment, actually, based on what you were saying about um, not being afraid to talk to people about what they're really experiencing. Uh, there were people who, in the days after my father-in-law died, who uh, uh, felt they we shouldn't talk about it with my mom, my mother-in-law, because she was too vulnerable, she was too fragile. It would just upset her even further, and that struck me as wrong. Uh, it struck me that, in fact, she or anybody else in that situation really needs to have an opportunity to talk about that very basic fact of something that happened, not act as if it somehow didn't. And Bill, you know, in, in psychotherapy, we call it a classic reaction formation. Um, so to me, what you just described sounds like it has more to do with the person who didn't want to have to have a difficult conversation because it made that person, you know, anxious or feel like they couldn't talk about something that was tough. Um, it's the same thing, I think, as we conceptualize a lot of human behavior. Um, if you're feeling one way on the inside that is incompatible with how you would like to feel, it's really easy to project it onto somebody else. Um, and so, you know, classically, um, we, we talk about spontaneous denials. If somebody set, starts a sentence with saying, I'm not X, but, um, you know, I'm not uh, sexist, but women are bad drivers, they are. Whatever they said they're not, they actually are. And I look at um, the comment that you just made is exactly the same kind of a reaction formation. If um, somebody says, oh, you know, your mother-in-law is too fragile to handle a difficult conversation about her husband's death, it has nothing to do with her. It has to do with the concern and the anxiety of the person who's trying to avoid having that conversation. You know, along those lines, uh, Ray, uh, so we've talked a lot about, you know, others and keeping an eye on others and others' grief, but at what's, what should each one of us be paying attention to about ourselves 
during this time in terms of the stress we feel or the disconnection we feel? I mean, um, give me some give, give me some things to 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 watch out for to make sure that I'm mentally healthy. Yeah, it's it's a real concern for a lot of people. And if somebody you know starts off already having anxiety or depression, um, the pandemic and and the you know requisite physical isolation and all the changes that are going along um, with living these days makes all of those things worse. Um, so classically, you know, according to the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, fifth edition, um, the things that we want people to watch out for that are sort of warning signs um, include the following. Things. If somebody is um, thinking about suicide or thinking about um, uh, death or has uh, ruminative thoughts about um, not living any longer, that is obviously a clear warning sign and would require, you know, kind of urgent um, attention. Um, people who lose interest in things they used to like to do uh, are potentially at risk for having um, depression or anxiety. Um, having an overwhelming sense of guilt or worthlessness um, can be a, a warning sign, um, problems with energy, problems concentrating, a change in appetite, um, and a change in sleep. And together, if somebody experiences a majority of those things that I just outlined um, for most of the day, every day for two weeks in a row, that would actually mean that that person is in um, what we would consider to be a major depressive episode or clinical depression. Um, the reason that I, I want to draw attention to mood disorders like depression is because um, so many people people experience these things, and the results can be disastrous if there aren't um, interventions like um, reaching out and getting therapy or uh, figuring out innovative ways to reconnect with um, social relations. All right, let me do this. Uh, let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and when we come back, uh, let's talk about, again, some of the more practical uh, aspects of how we're dealing with all of this emotionally, mentally. We'll do that after these messages. I'm joined today by uh, AJC editor Kevin Riley, my partner on Thursday shows, and Skyland Trail Chief Medical Officer Dr. Ray Kotwicki. Uh, by the way, uh, Kevin was very uh, kind to tell me that the um, comments I made about my father-in-law at the beginning of the show were he really appreciated that they were a fine obituary. In fact, there is a wonderful obituary that my wife, Janice Schaefer, wrote, which uh, we've just put a link to up on our social media platforms. You, you will, uh, if you want to read it, you'll see just what, a, what an extraordinary guy he was and how much Janice and the rest of us all loved him. Um, Kevin, I know one of the things that uh, you have to contemplate now. How many, how many people work at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, essentially work for you? About 160 and uh, and you're yeah. well, no, that was really a question I have for Ray. I, and I, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who lead organizations, large and small. Um, it, what what's your advice for us um, as we try, you know, to adjust to the situation where I, I can't just walk around the newsroom and eyeball people and kind of see how they look or stop by their desk for an impromptu conversation. I mean, I really am worried that is everyone okay out there? Can, can I keep track of everybody? Can we, can we make sure during this? Because every business, you know, we focus a lot on healthcare workers and others, which are where people certainly are doing the hardest work. But in 
virtually every business now, people have demands they've never had before. And I, I, how do we make sure everyone's okay? Well, Kevin, you know, looking to the psychiatric research is really informative in um, sort of a response from somebody who's a leader. Um, and, you know, while it's different, I, I have been refreshing myself sort of with the research on uh, response to traumas. And what is really clear is that um, in a lot of different situations, when people are under really traumatic uh, circumstances, the trauma in and of itself isn't the predictor of how somebody's going to come out on the other side. It's how the people respond um, to learning about the trauma and to being able or not to protect um, the person after a trauma uh, 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 occurs. Um, and so, you know, if um, a kid is um, physically abused, that's terrible. But if their caregivers, the parents in most situations, um, react in an appropriate way, it really mitigates the effect that that physical abuse will have on the child moving forward. And so I look at it um, very similarly in a work setting. Um, and this has been one of the uh, most difficult things from my point of view as um, you know, somebody who wants to lead a team at a healthcare facility is my number one goal should be to try to protect the people who are coming in to work every day. And it's been really difficult to do that because of a lack of personal protective equipment, um, a lack of guidance from, um, you know, healthcare organizations that are, are designed to uh, issue um, protocols and guidelines to help protect people. Um, but I think, you know, the number one thing that, that you and everybody can do at an organization is to think about what would be perceived by people you truly care about as being um, a sort of protection strategies. Um, so, you know, making sure that people understand what physical distancing includes, um, redesigning the physical plant at work uh, spaces so that people don't come into contact, doing things that are responsive and um, very proactive are interpreted by people who are looking to a leader as being um, a very uh, thoughtful and concerned uh, uh, reaction to something horrific like this. Um, and, and Ray, your uh, folks, are, you've already got a team of, of, of people who work at Skyland Trail who are used to dealing with some very, very difficult uh, patients, uh, people with uh, a significant uh, mental and emotional issues. Um, and right. I would assume there's a certain t toughness that you have to develop um, when you're in that uh, uh, setting. But uh, here's another thing. Your folks, apparently, uh, uh, many of your employees continue to come into the office to work, whereas, Kevin, I assume that your, a lot of your people, like those of us who are at GPB, are able to work remotely. And I, so there's a different sort of way in which you manage those two different things, right, Ray and then Kevin? Yeah, it's fundamentally different because, um, you know, protecting somebody when they're physically present is much different than protecting, I'm using air quotes even though you can't see me, somebody who is um, working from home. Um, and, you know, I think the, the idea of protecting people who are working remotely is um, very uh, metaphoric in the sense that people understand what's going on. Um, there's appropriate and timely communication. Um, there is a reminder of the importance of self-care and 
sticking to routine, um, not letting somebody kind of drift off into uh, Never Never Land um, uh, by themselves at home. Um, those are the ideas of what it means to be sort of protective, I think, of employees when they're not physically present. Um, and uh, it, it, it becomes very easy to sort of say, oh, well, you know, people are just going to take care of themselves. And um, if they're not at, at the office or they're not working together, they'll figure it out. I, I really do believe that as um, an employer of good conscience, it's, it's important to retain that kind of social connectivity with people who are physically um, away from, from work. Yeah, I would agree with Ray. I mean, I think that um, if I were to share some of the things I've learned and what I've been most impressed with, uh, you know, with our folks in the AJC newsroom is, I mean, it's a mistake to say, oh, people can tough it out. I mean, I do think that for so many of us, the initial weeks of this uh, represented kind of a certain challenge or even, you know, a, a, a uh, approach based on adrenaline to, you know, just kind of see it. But as it settles in and we realize, gosh, we're going to be working like this for a long time, and we start to think about you know what what people need. Um, one of the, along with what Ray suggests, um, which I took a bunch of notes, and and uh, I'm going to have I'm literally talking to the managers of our newsroom right after we finish the show today in a in a uh, Zoom call, and um, I think that it's important to do all those things and then acknowledge. I have worked really hard at acknowledging good work that people have done. Um, my worry is that I'm, you know, am I aware of all of it all the time? And, and uh, so I've got a roster of all the folks who work in our newsroom and I try to look at it every day and think about different people so that uh, because um, it, all organizations, whether it's as small as a family or as big as a large company, everyone is is playing a part. Everyone is doing a crucial thing at this time in a new way, and it's important to let people know how much they appreciate. We they're appreciated for doing that. So one of the things that we deal with, um, and I, Kevin, I thought Ray Codwicky was uh, very kind when he said we're not getting the guidance we need from, and he said health organizations. He I can't help but wonder if he was talking about the Centers for Disease Control right down the street from where he happens to uh, work. Uh, but but isn't that – but there, Kevin, that's contributing to this enormous anxiety we all feel. We get mixed messages from the White House. Yeah, the, we need to get back out and work. Yes, everybody who needs a test can get one. We're, we find out today, this morning, that once again we've gotten faulty data from the state public – health department on uh, how many tests have been given out there because they mixed it up with people who have had antibody tests and created the impression there have been far more tests taken than than there actually have been. We're left in a... Plus, we simply, Kevin, we don't really know. It's I've said over and over on this show, it'd be nice if we had some definitive understanding of the virus, but what we learn as weeks go by is no, we're operating in the Wild West in many ways here. And that anxiety, Kevin, is weighing on us in really traumatic ways. I agree with you, Bill. I don't think that we can uh, uh, expect that if we spend decades saying government doesn't work and experts shouldn't be trusted, that um, at a time like this, we can't expect that we won't pay a price for that. I mean, I think, you know, again, part of what... Ray is saying is um, good information 
that, that and and kind of a transparency and an effort to under I mean, if people can understand what's going on, they can start from there to to keep them to steady themselves and to act and react and adjust. But we can't. We don't even know every day if the state's numbers are right. I mean, it's become sort of a yeah. a crazy situation. And I just think that um, from a leadership perspective and just from a health of our society perspective, both physically and mentally, we're seeing things that we really, I really hope we can fix after this is all over. Ray, that's it. The anxiety is overwhelming because there's no such thing as a, as a fundamental uh, understanding of exactly what's happening. Right. And if there's a finite amount of energy that any of us has to be able to move forward, um, expending a significant amount of that sifting through information and trying to figure out what is valid and what isn't um, is a real uh, waste of, of effort. Um, and so, you know, I think people are talking about um, fatigue. Um, there's compassion fatigue, um, thinking, you know, about having to worry about other people during the pandemic. There's literal physical fatigue and having to kind of drudge through all the um, things that we have to do every day. Um, but there's fatigue, I think, in, in terms of energy in sifting through misinformation. Um, and, and from my point of view, and I think uh, from, you know, a perspective of a, a leader, whether it's an organization or a family um, or anything else, it's a real misuse of, of resources to have to expend energy trying to figure out what is real and what's truthful. Well, um, that's right, and uh, I appreciate your uh, talking to us about just that. Um, we're just about uh, we're just about out of time uh, for today's show. I'm not quite sure whose alert I'm hearing. I do have to tell you, <laughs> uh, a couple of times when we've had alerts go off, I'm, our listeners just drive me. They're after me. <laughs> so if you're if you're not muted on an alert out there, I wish you'd do it. Um, we are just about out of time, though for today's show. Uh, Dr. Ray Kotwicki, Skyland Trail, it's always such a pleasure to get to talk to you and to hear your thinking on what we're all dealing with right now. So are, how are you? Are you okay handling all this pretty well yourself, uh, Ray? Are you, a, are you a good patient for yourself? <laughs> Well, Bill, I, I really appreciate being invited back to your show, and I hope that um, I can get in on uh, Kevin and, and your uh, Thursday groups um, moving forward. I really have enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> But, but thanks for asking. Um, you know, I, I feel just like everybody else, I'm, I'm getting tired of living this way. Um, and as a, an individual, um, I, I usually don't speak about myself, but I kind of have a, a high need for novelty and new things um, and the redundancy of, um, you know, staying in, in the same place and kind of adhering to the same schedule every day is getting um, tiring. Um, but I'm, I'm working really hard to take my own advice and, and be mindful, um, spend time focusing on those really important things that matter to me as an individual, and that seems to be working. So thanks for asking. Uh, Ray Kotwicki, I'm so glad you were with us today. Kevin Riley, you're holding up pretty well. you got about 30 seconds to give us a, an update on your emotional health. I'm doing okay, Bill, but it's a simple thing. I miss my friends. I miss my colleagues in the AJC newsroom, and I literally miss you and the producers at GPB and our off-air banter when we're in the studio, and I can't wait to really see you guys again. Yep, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do that uh, probably about, what, 
2021, if we're <laughs> lucky. Uh, that's it. We're out of time for today's Political Rewind. Uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you all very much for indulging me and letting me talk to you about our family right now. Um, we're going to return to politics tomorrow. I know that's a subject you always want to hear about. We've got a great panel lined up to talk about campaign 2020 and more. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, take care and please stay healthy. See you tomorrow.